Hey all, and welcome to Own Rooted, brought to you by Olmsted Wine Co., where we get the sales pitch out of the way to shine a light on the lived experience of our favorite winemakers. I'm your host, Max, and our guest today is Shant Ungulian of Leiluns and Populous Wines in Orinda, California. Shant and his colleague Diego Roig are science-minded, progressive wine growers with a knack for balancing tradition and innovation. Sides are just really awesome dudes, and I always, always look forward to getting to chat with them. thinking we might as well start at the beginning sort of how did how did you and Diego get paired up and like when did uh, this idea start to germinate yeah so let's see um Diego let's see both of us on our own had been working in the wine industry I think Diego since 06 and myself since 08 um so I was just after college kind of started working I think Diego had a um a brief I don't know if he actually went, but like started thinking about going to law school and then was like, this isn't going to work and started <laughs> um, working in a, you know, at, a, at some wineries up in Sonoma and I was up in Anderson Valley. Um, and just by happenstance, we both were in, got into the uh, UC Davis master's uh, of viticulture and enology program um, in the same year. And so it, that's kind of a small cohort. There's usually you know, about 10 uh, master students and then, you know, 30 or so undergrads. So you really get a chance to get to know each other. You know, you sure. go on trips, different wine regions, visit wine producers, wine tastings as a group, you know, all this and that. So, you know, we just became pretty good friends and uh, there was a good group of folks there. And, you know, we were kind of really pushing each other. Um, and a lot of us had worked either internationally or had experience in um, the wine industry before and so kind of had an idea of what was going on and just a real kind of passion and curiosity and so we kind of helped push each other more towards you know small more interesting kind of family produced you know or, or organically farmed um, wines you know you could call it natural wines or lower intervention or whatever you want kind of want to call it and so we kind of really took that and ran with it. And so it was really cool to have that experience of the UC Davis, very technical kind of education, but then to be able to see it through the lens of natural winemaking and then real kind of organic or hands-off farming, you know? So it's like really, you know, I always say this is that, you know, science is like a, it's a tool, it's a way of thinking. It's not necessarily like a way of acting. Mm. And so you can use these principles, these fundamentals to help control and manipulate, you know, in a five acre tank farm in the central Cal in central Cal or the, the central Valley in California, making, you know, millions and millions of gallons of um, grocery store wine. You know, it's the same principles that go on in the one, you know, barrel of Chardonnay that we have happening. Mm -hmm. So, you know, by understanding the biochemistry, you know, the flavor, flavor chemistry, the farming aspects, you know, the microbiology, these things, it helps you to really understand where the wine's coming from and hopefully, mm -hmm to make these lower intervention wines from a really great place. And so, you know, as a group, the wine tastings, you know, we were doing, you know, it's funny because one of the first tastings I went 
because um, I had been exposed a lot to in my previous work up in Anson Valley. It was you know Pinots, kind of your typical mm-hmm. North Coast Pinot, and then they did some Alsatian varieties. And so it was in 2008. It was my first vintage. I was fresh out of I had a chemistry uh, degree before that, and Gewurztraminer grapes came into the winery and we were pressing them. I never tasted a grape like that. I never had a muscat grape before, and you know they're kind of aromatic, mm-hmm. slightly pink. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, we make these red wines, you know, you leave the grapes on the skins or stems or whatever, and then we'll make rosé from red wines. Um, and then the, with the white grapes, we make white wine. And I'm like, wait, there's a fourth, there's like a symmetry in this that we're missing. And so I asked the winemaker, I said, well, have you ever tried making, you know, this Gewurztraminer macerated on the skins? Unbeknownst to me, you know, people have been doing this for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. (laughs) (laughs) But the winemaker was like, no, um, it's going to be too bitter and it's not going to be correct and this and that. And so I kind of remember thinking like squaring that away in my head so that then a few months later I was reading about wine or whatever and saw that, oh, that is a thing. And so I was like, Mm -hmm. wait. What else are they telling me that isn't? Yeah, sure. And that was the kind of first little nugget, you know, and so that was the kind of thing that we took with this to Davis. And I mean, the professors, again, there was a couple that were like, you guys are a little too much and you're not, you're going to make weird wines or these aren't safe or something. But most of them were extremely, they loved us because we were always in the front row asking all mm-hmm. the questions, mm-hmm. you know, in the group and cohort and, and mm-hmm. really tasting lots of different things. Another, um, the first tasting that I, I remember was, um, it was a rosé tasting, a lot of kind of normal, typical stuff. But the last wine, um, the the guy who's putting it on, he was the, the president of that tasting group. It was the Lopez de Heredia, mm. uh, the, the rosé. And this, so this was, we would have been tasting it, I think in 2010, mm-hmm. in like the late summer. So it would have been like and, 2002 or something. Yeah, 2001. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. And that yeah, was yeah. the current release. And, yeah. and we tasted them all blind and we t- and everyone's like, oh, this is, what is this, you know? But yeah, I remember tasting and think, oh, I didn't know that rosé sure. tastes like this. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think it's, it's kind of, in a lot of ways, uh, it's kind of like this idea of, you know, Plato's the cave allegory mm-hmm. and where you know there's there's prisoners and they're lined up and they're looking at the wall and all they see is the shadows mm-hmm. of the, the things behind them and they think that that's what the reality is mm-hmm. um but then you know if you kind of turn around and you can actually like look at them you know a lot of people are uncomfortable and they think like oh i just want to go back to what i know sure. but then you know in that pot you know itself like you see the real thing and there's a lot more richness and depth and and texture and, and you know something to it and so it's kind of in some ways it was a lot like that like you kind of taste these different things and it's either like oh i don't like this it's weird or you take it and you think oh this is amazing like here's a new thing that i've learned a new flavor to experience a new mm-hmm. opportunity you know and like what else mm-hmm. do i don't i know the other thing too is that the club that there's a lot of alumni that come out of davis and they work at real fancy wineries all over california and everything and so um, they throw this big, huge, like gala dinner where they get wineries to donate wine, and then chefs come and volunteer, and they do like a seven-course meal, and you know, hundred people come, and it's 
hundred dollars, hundred fifty dollars a head or something. So it's like the most well-funded student club by, <laughs> by far. And so there's always a, a budget for a summer trip, which is usually to go to Europe. And for whatever reason, there was only five of us that went. So we had like this almost all expenses paid trip to go mm. to France. And one of the women that went on it, her husband was working uh, as a rep for Terra Firma, who does the Rosendahl book. Mm. And so he got us in touch with a lot of different producers in Beaujolais, um, kind of the Rhone Valley, and then a little bit of Northern Italy in, in Piedmont and mm. kind of the Val d'Aosta. And so again, like I didn't know a lot and it's kind of amazing to say this and I, I wish I could go back to these simpler times, but mm. I think I had maybe tasted just a couple Beaujolais until mm. we we're literally in Julian Sunier's cave <laughs> in the 2010 that he just bottled and it's like, oh my God, like, <laughs> I can't believe how good it's like me and Dave were looking at each other. We're like, are you tasting this? Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. what? Cause you know, when you're used to drinking, you know, 15%, yeah. you know, that's all oaked and everything. You're like, Oh yeah, it's good. Or, you know, whatever. But then especially 2010 in Beaujolais, it was such a great year. Mm. It's like fresh and crunchy mm -hmm. and acid and fruity. And you're just like, Holy shit. Like this is, this is it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we just traveled a lot and um, I think I, I can't remember what, where it is, but I was always interested in, you know, the, the agriculture aspect of it. So my, mm -hmm. I took a research, um, my thesis was about, you know, more viticulture kind of position so I could learn more about grapevine physiology and, mm -hmm. and things like that. And um, Diego was similar. He worked on a project with grapevine breeding and I had applied to, there's a, like this Burgundy um, fellowship that they give to two Davis students every year. And I unfortunately didn't get that, which mm. turned out to be good because, you know, they put you at a real high end, fancy Burgundy house. And, um, you know, it's kind of a little bit of that. So I ended up working. So I, I knew I still wanted to go to France. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up finding a, a, a stage or a harvest internship in Anjou in the Loire Valley. And so there was again kind of dropped into this very, you know, rock and roll kind of natural wine sure. thing, um, which was super cool and real, a lot of fun. And at the time, Diego was in uh, Chinon working mm. at a place, Charles Joguet. And so we were about like a half an hour apart from each other driving. And so, you know, every weekend we'd hang out, we'd cook dinner together, visit wine producers every weekend, mm -hmm. just. Mm -hmm talk a lot about yeah. tasting, having dinner. And, you know, when you go and meet, it's kind of, you can learn a lot about even less about like maybe the specific like things they're saying, but it's like, how does someone talk about their mm. process? Mm. And, you know, we go and meet with these wine producers and we'd be in the cave, we're tasting wines, but we'd be talking about their soils and we'd be, they'd be showing us their, the implements on their tractor or how they're pruning or all these different things. And so I think even just through that, like having conversations with these, these wine growers, you know, the vigneron out there, it's like, Oh, we got to learn about how to talk about the viticulture and the farming because yeah. that's what they want to talk about. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, 
if you ask too much, oh, is it how long was the maceration or this? It's like they're like, I don't know when it was done. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> it's like right that kind of thing. And so I think that really that time in France, you know, being there for a couple of years and working like really informed that desire and that that want. And so then, yeah, after a couple of years, we both came to move back and wanted to start making wine together and kind of realized we could we could kind of team up and hopefully do more together. And that's kind of how things got going in that way. I just, I love that. That's such a cool way to sort of get to know somebody and start to yeah, know yeah. what it would be like to work with each other, even before you're, was there like a particular moment where you're like, hey man, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Cause like, I'm kind of thinking a thing. Uh, you know, it's funny, not exactly, but I mean, I think we were talking about different ways that you could make like, okay, how, what would it look like to make wine in California? Like, how would you do that? Or, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, oh, well, what if there's a small vineyard, you can farm it by hand and you have to buy grapes or, you know, cause there's, there's one that it was a, a friend of ours at Davis. It was like some family connection. They had a little, I think one acre vineyard that he would always make wine from every year, but then he was moving and it was like, oh, maybe, we could, maybe what would that look like? Okay, you have this many grapes and makes this many bottles. And it was like the worst business plan ever, <laughs> you know, but like starting to think about things like that. And I don't, I don't really remember the specifics. There, I don't think there was really like a specific moment like that. So I'm not, not that I can really remember. One of the things that I think is really interesting about what you're doing is um, there, there's a pretty clear mission attached to it. There's like a, a kind of holistically meaningful uh, goal. Was that, at what point did that come in? And like, how long has that been the goal? Or is that just something that you sort of ideologically found yourself gravitating towards? Part of some of that comes from the probably the tutelage of the people that we worked with. So, sure. um, yeah, I spent like a whole year working with uh, Philippe Vallat and Macomb. Yeah. And then um, after that harvest, I spent some time harvesting and, and vinifying with Julie Valani up in, mm, sure. um, in Fleury. And during that year, Diego was um, down at Domaine Leon Baral with this gentleman, uh, Didier Baral. And these are like maybe the three like yeah. just like craziest <laughs> yeah. people who at the time like it's like if you're buying grapes like you're a phony it's like <laughs> it's all about the vineyards and the soils and how you farm and like i mean you look at didier like i mean he has bulls and cows running through basically doing the pruning for him and his <laughs> winemaking is like i mean it's so like primitive and hands off and you know, you're in these huge cement vats and you're pressing grapes for two days. And I mean, it's like, you know, working with these folks that were staunchly like, I grow my grapes and I don't buy grapes, like mm -hmm. I'm a wine grower, you know? And so I think that was heavily influenced, like kind of what, what we're doing. And, and then it was also reminding me of, you know, talking to Philippe, I lived in his guest room in his house. So I was pestering him, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, like literally. And one day I was talking to him about, you know, the different, every year you have different yields and like, so how do you adjust like, okay, if you have some more barrels one year um, in a certain wine or, you know, if in a bigger year, there'll be less barrels available. You got to use mm -hmm. more tanks and particularly in his Macron Village, it's like his base wine. Yeah. And so if there's, yeah, it's a, if it's a small year, he has more barrels in that particular wine. 
And he looks at me and he's like, you're missing the point. He's like, yeah, it's different. Like the, the wine is going to be different if it's in more barrel or if it's in more tank. He's like, but it's the same quality. He's like, if, mm. if the thing that people are noticing mm-hmm. and talking mm-hmm. about is, sure, oh, this has more barrel or you has needed more tank or something, then he's like, you're not smelling like the life of the wine. Mm. And, and it's like, you're missing the point. And like, that really, you know, hit home yeah. to me. I was like, oh, this is really, really interesting. And it's like, I think that you think it's easy to um, ascribe more importance to one's actions than there is actually you know what yeah. I mean? i'll take for another example now from from us that i started seeing it and so I, again i remember that i'm like oh this is this is amazing i have it in my notebook but it was in 2017 here in california there was a crazy heat wave it was yeah like, you know 110 degrees for five days straight you know and 100 degrees for two weeks or something and the vines were just like wonked out and crazy and so we had no idea like where the sugars were at or you know where the acids were and things and um, we picked uh grapes for rosé so this is from some of the carignan that we uh get from larry venturi up in mendocino Mm -hmm. county and it came in and the juice was like undrinkable it was so acidic wow so tart and we're just like this is this is no good like we're gonna have to dump it out like we're we're screwed right mm-hmm. but it turns out that after the wine went through malolactic fermentation it's because i think so much of that acidity was due to um, the malic acid which is real hard acid and the ph was still super low you know it was real high acid wine but since there was so much malic acid there was a mm-hmm. lot of lactic mm-hmm. acid in the finished wine mm-hmm. and then the wine ended up having like this real like creaminess that countered that um that real sharp acidity and so in some ways it's like oh wait it matters way less like when we're picking it because the wine is almost going to adjust itself Mm. and what's what's actually important is that these are 70 year old vines that haven't been watered and have been you know farmed organically since the day they were planted you know yeah and so, and it's like, oh, we could have picked that two weeks later and the rosé probably also would have been delicious. Like, again, uh-huh. a different sure. wine, but right. like a totally different profile. But like, hopefully, again, searching for that balance, that equilibrium. Well, so let's, uh, let's, let's sort of uh, get into a little bit about what is meant by regenerative farming. I mean, I think at this point, you know, most people are sort of familiar with the idea of, you know, organic farming being kind of the way to go, but it's very abstract. Yeah. The definition of regenerative farming, I mean, it's really, it's like, I don't know, you know, and I, I'm not afraid <laughs> yeah. to say something because uh, then I might get in trouble or whatever. <laughs> For me, what the idea is, it's like you make it better than it was. And hopefully like mm-hmm. you keep pushing further and further and further. And whether you want to look at that from like a, carbon footprint standpoint mm. or a soil vitality or uh, a vine health or, you know, all these things are obviously interrelated too. And so, you know, I think that's just the, the overall general goal is like, let's make this site better year after year, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that's where I like not to get 
too much into the weeds, but anytime it comes to be with labels and things like that, like it really is less important than, you know, knowing the person, knowing what they're doing and trusting them. You look at, I think, you know, Walmart is like the biggest purchaser of organic produce, but that's like going to be way different produce than the stuff from your yeah. uncle, you know, organic, you know, mm-hmm. farmer's market. And it's more, it could be on industrial scale. So like, what does the term organic mean? Like it, it, it's not inherently better than conventional, mm-hmm. but it's not inherently like you now you've surpassed this bar and it's all great. The idea that we have with regenerative farming is again, to, to really increase the health of all the vineyards that we farm. And really, I think one of the, the, the big goals and like something that we started doing early on is like, how do we prevent vineyards from being torn out and mm-hmm. replanted? Mm-hmm. Because that's one of the biggest impacts in terms of, you know, carbon footprint, carbon sequestration, things like that is to replant a vineyard when it's, when it's ripped and it's, and the vines are torn out and there's new stuff planted. Like that the soil like is actually holding a lot of um, carbon in it mm. as organic matter. And so when you, do these replanting, you kind of release a lot of that. And so Mm. it's like, how do we avoid, how can we like bring a a vineyard back to health from like an environmental standpoint is great, but then also Mm -hmm. like the wine quality and of the the vine age, that's also super important too, because, you know, the the vineyards, you know, probably going to take, you know, five, 10 years before they start producing something that's like of a reasonable quality, quality, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, because we came back from France wanting to farm some vineyards. And so talk to some people that own vineyards, you know, see if there's some connections and they'd say like, well, you know, where's your tractor? Who's your mm-hmm. crew? You know, what other vineyards are you farming? And we're like, no, no, don't worry. It's <laughs> like, I got this, you know? And they're like, okay, like take a hike, you know? And so we started with just, it was literally a half acre vineyard in someone's backyard. Nice. With a backpack, the whole thing. The first big jump was the next year, uh, the vineyard that we purchased, uh, the Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot that goes in our Cabernet mm. line. The owner of the vineyard had been losing money year after year because she hired uh, a vineyard manager to, to grow the grapes and she sold the grapes and, you know, they weren't, it wasn't really penciling out for her. Mm. And that's because these varieties were not quote unquote, the right varieties for the region. So Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, these Bordeaux varieties in Camaros, Southern Sonoma County, like they like didn't fit supposedly. And, you know, people weren't even willing to pay the county average price because they, the grapes wouldn't get ripe. And, but for us, we're like, oh, this is great. And, and further, you know, it was one of the oldest vineyards in that region, uh, you know, planted in the early, late seventies, kind of early eighties. And so, if it wasn't for us to probably take over the farming, it would have got ripped out and planted to Pinot, which, mm. you know, now there's a glut of Pinot and who knows that might get be left fallow or ripped out or whatever. Mm. And so um, the vineyard was also struggling. I mean, this was during the drought. And so there was a lot of eutypha, a lot of um, kind of wood disease. And so we really put on a lot of compost. We pruned back, um, cut off all the dead wood. And it was this real kind of, multi-year process of Mm -hmm. getting the vineyard back into shape so it's producing you know a yield that 
again, makes sense. Cause I think mm-hmm. that's another thing that like is easy to forget, you know, and it, it works if you're farming, you know, an acre or, or a couple and you're selling wine for 30, 40 plus bucks or something. But mm-hmm. if you're trying to make something that, you know, can be actually drunk and appreciated, like, and, and again, like from a environmental standpoint, like you want to have the vineyard actually yield grapes. Like, cause if you're driving your tractor all over or you're driving up or you're working it to get a half ton an acre, like you're probably in the whole grand scheme carbon fiber thing, you're, you're doing it a negative thing. Yeah, sure. That's really what we look for is where, where is there value that people are overlooking? And so for us in this, this, Cabernet in this Merlot vineyard, it was like, okay, kind of older vineyard that's not producing well and varieties that are not the quote unquote correct varieties. Mm-hmm. But to us, it was a it was a good fit and it was actually better than probably the other stuff there. So it's like, oh, people are overlooking how valuable this vineyard is, but we see kind of the true value there. And how do mm-hmm. we how do we express that? Mm-hmm. You know, and I use value in a in a much broader sense than just the dollars and cents yeah, it's right. Uh, in terms of, okay, the climate's good as interesting kind of clay soils. And I think there's potential to make really great wines that our style can help to like unlock. Well, so when you're, you're, so how many different, uh, like how many different vineyards are you working with at this point? Um, you know, they range in size, but yeah, I'd say about 10. And yeah. so it's from as far as, um, Alexander Valley, um, there's a new vineyard that we're farming this year, a little bit in the Bennett Valley, Kenwood area, and more, what is that, Central Sonoma, I guess, mm-hmm. or I don't know what you call it exactly, but further up Sonoma Valley in the Carneros area, and then a little bit in Napa as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think 40 acres, because when people think about acreage, they're either thinking about like like per- personal real estate or you're you're hearing about like massive two hundred acre chicken farm kind of situation. Yeah. So yeah, like, can yeah. you can you help put like what does forty acres look like on a like this is how hard we have to work. This is what our team is like. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we um, let's see, we have a team. We have somebody working for us in the winery, but they're probably like you know, twenty five to forty percent in the vines as well during the mm-hmm. high periods. Um, Diego and I obviously work a lot, like, especially now, like all the time in the vineyards. Uh, and then we have two guys working for us full time in the vineyards year round. And then during right now, uh, in May really is when you're shoot thinning. And so that's where we will kind of hire some outside help to -hmm. come help. Like maybe people are moonlighting on the weekends, you know, they work for another vineyard or Mm -hmm. manager and they come and help us, um, to get over the hump with some of this, uh, you know, extra work during this period. And then also during the harvest time. So otherwise, yeah, it's a team. Uh, there's five of us, um, in total. And yeah, we, that's a lot of ground to cover for that. Yeah, 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 for sure. (laughs) And so, um, that equates to, I think we're make about like 90 tons of grapes or thereabout, maybe, a little bit more so mm. that's uh yeah it's somewhere in the realm of like five thousand cases of wine a little bit and again this is kind of and actually this has been really helpful for us particularly now about 
eight of those acres, we just provide the farming for mm -hmm. someone, another winery. So it's like we farm it for them. Okay. Um, and then it helps us keep our guys busy. It helps like, I mean, again, right now, um, it's super helpful because it's like they give us a check every month and it's like, oh yeah, we can, even if wine sales are, have been slow, like we can mm -hmm. still pay our guys. Like we haven't, we haven't laid anybody off. We haven't reduced any. That's hours. awesome. Um, nothing like that. So that's helpful in order to like diversify kind of how the farming makes the money. Mm -hmm. um, and then we sell grapes to other friends too, um, mm -hmm. that are winemakers. So again, kind of, doing these different things so we end up out of those 90 tons we probably keep like you know 50 or 60 or so sure. is kind of where sure. we're at. one of the things i think that's really interesting about the way that you strategize your company is you've got what both of you talk about all the time is there, there's this this um a really clear curiosity mm. and a really clear desire to have data to have information, to have a, yeah. a feedback system that allows you to um, confirm or disprove ideas that you're starting to um, to think about. And one of the things I think is really interesting about you know the, the populist idea is that that you're 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 so playful in that environment. There's so many, you know, we're gonna mess around with doing. We got a whole bunch of carignan, so we're gonna do carignan six bazillion ways. Yeah, um, yeah. By contrast, the the Le Lunes thing is so much more, at least from an outsider's perspective, is so much more um, like strategized ahead of time. Is that is that accurate? I think it would say like again, it was kind of a a, a matter of intent, mm. and so. Like I said before, our original like goal was to grow all the grapes that we're going to farm. We quickly realized that that was not going to work, you know, with this half acre vineyard and whatever it's always <laughs> had. Um, <laughs> and but then additionally, you know, we met farmers like you know Larry Venturi, Susan and John Poor, um, mm -hmm. Martha Barr up in Redwood Valley, and it's like, oh man, like these are a hundred year old Carignan vines they've been farming here for generations. Like I have so much I can learn from them too, mm -hmm. you know, because they're really farming in a, in like what was a purely California farming. It's not like you look, um, I'm going to digress just real quickly. Um, you know, if you kind of follow like modern viticulture, you know, that actually is almost, at least as much of the issue with regards to like the parkerization of wines and everything is the winemaking. Like the mm -hmm. viticulture's gotten so advanced and so precise um, and interventionist mm -hmm. that you can like manipulate the grapes to get rid of greenness or you know it's like yeah. these huge fruit bombs and stuff because you're you're planting almost like these bonsai. You know it's a really weak vine that relies on you to irrigate it or to give it the nutrients and you can stress it at these really specific physiological moments to increase the perception you know increase the fruitiness or have bigger tan more tannin or darker color or these all these things that you can kind of do to manipulate and so i think that's interesting but it's great then to look on the other side these old school california farmers that literally were farming like well, why do you have your drip irrigation or irrigation it's like well they didn't invent it yet when mm -hmm. those vines were planted. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's on a hillside, so you can't you can't water it unless you get a bucket and like 
<laughs> like literally, you know. So yeah. So it's been great to work with them and to learn from them. And so that's where, you know, the populous wines, we were buying the grapes and then, you know, wanted to make just fun, drinkable, kind of everyday stuff. Um, we had a couple bottlings to be able to showcase and make a more kind of refined, kind of aged wine. And in the first few years, the surface that we're farming wasn't really we, we only had maybe five, 10 acres or, or so. Mm. And so we didn't have necessarily grapes to spare to make outside of what we wanted to be like a real kind of classic, yeah. kind of old school style. And so that was really fun. And that's something I think we really enjoy making those wines that are real precise, ageable, like, and really awesome in that way. Because again, you know, our time in France, like you go, you taste these, um, great, you know, old Jura wines or, or Burgundies or, you know, old Cap Francs in the Loire, I mean, anywhere. And they're like aged super well and they're amazing and delicious. And we're like, oh wait, these are, a lot of them are no sulfur, tiny sulfur, you know, so mm -hmm. natural wines. And you're like, oh yeah, this is really a thing. Like we want to make that as well. Um, but since now we've, able, you know, it seems like we're kind of snowballing or, you know, our reputation as farmers has gotten better and so now people are coming to us with oh i have this vineyard maybe you want to take over the lease or you want to oh, farm cool. and so we have more surface available and so that's where the um like the the cosmic blend and then you'll be getting some of the astral blend like those are now like okay let's let's now make a little bit more playful fun wines from the Leyloon, like the stuff that we're we're growing ourselves to kind of again showcase those two different styles of you know, the low intervention natural wine. Um, like, okay, it can be real serious in age, but oh, well, what if we do a much shorter skin, you know, maceration, maybe pick it slightly differently, do different blends. Like they can be super fun and playful mm, too. Mm, and it's really a question of intent and mm -hmm. what you're doing. And again, like I would say, one isn't necessarily inherently better than the other. Sure. Yeah, they're both delicious. Sure, and sure. They should show that, you know, the energy and the vibrancy that we're trying to, to really coax out of the soils and the vines. At what point do you start to feel like you really understand the personality of a vineyard and it's it's a little bit more of a relationship rather than a, because I imagine there's a while where you just feel like you're seeking and trying yeah. to kind of correct, you yeah. know? Well, I better be careful because I'm sure as soon as I say like, oh, I, I understand this vineyard, it's gonna be it's not tempt to fades from high on top of the thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But no, I mean, I think um, again, it, it depends on the site, but it's really uh, a few years when you can start to really get involved and get to know it and get to know the the idiosyncrasies and the, the specific challenges. I think of each site, like you know, there's a few that we've been farming for five or so years now, and it's like, oh, this section always gets mildew. So like, mm -hmm. let's not freak out if mm -hmm. the section gets mildew because it always does. Like, mm -hmm. okay, we don't want to leaf pole or shoot thin everywhere because we want to protect the clusters from the um, the sunlight to preserve acidity. But like, okay, I do know that in this section we do need to do slightly different. Mm -hmm. And okay, maybe I downshift with my tractor and I drive a little slower if I'm when I'm mm -hmm. spraying. So just this section gets a little more, um, you know, we use stylet oil, something that's a fungicide, um, again, as opposed to really 
treating the whole vineyard for the worst spot. And I think that's kind of this, um, you know, in that idea of regenerative farming. And this is something I've spoken with um, Stephen Thyssen and Mimi Castile. They're real big proponents of that also is this kind of, um, it's great when it's your own fruit, you have the ability to be tolerant of quote unquote flaws, right? Like, mm. you know, if you, when you're selling grapes to people and luckily the people that buy grapes must were on the same page, mm-hmm. uh, but there's almost in, in a more typical situation, there's this like zero tolerance. Yeah, sure. Mildew or, you know, other, other diseases like that. And it's like, well, how do you get zero tolerance? You have to over apply yeah and so for us like mm-hmm. if we don't see mildew then that means we spray too much we want it to be always on that razor's edge and again knowing the vineyard it lets us take that risk a little more because it's like yeah you know we start out um you we use much lower like volumes of of spray but we'll typically stick to like a two-week interval which you know the, the product will say like oh it's seven to 10 days or like two weeks kind of works um, for us to start. And that's kind of the baseline. And it's like, okay, how do we stretch that further? How do we use less product per acre? And, you know, how do we go from there? Unless in the first year, if we get super burned, it's like, okay, actually we need to to step it up a little bit. So it's like, you need to take the risks in order to learn and you need to make mistakes in order to learn. And so I think with the idea of, like how do we get to know these vineyards or what's the relationship with them is, oh, okay, we, we learned some of these mistakes from these mistakes and we can be smarter and more like attenuated to the needs of the vineyard mm-hmm. and hopefully do more with less. And the same thing goes, I would say with, you know, same with irrigation too. Like some of the, there was a vineyard we started farming that was, um, had been irrigated and we thought, okay, like, well, there was good growth and it's, it was, you know, let's shut the, the water off. And so we shut the water off and it stressed the vines and then it expressed a lot of disease. And so then mm. that year we got like almost no crop. Mm. And so realizing that, again, these are kind of, for, for some things, like especially the irrigation, like these are, it's like a big ship and it needs to, to turn, you know, slow. Mm. like don't, mm. don't just cut it off right away. You need to. I love that prepare. metaphor. Yeah, you need to That's prepare great. the you know, get the vines ready because they have this memory of what's happened in the past. And mm-hmm. it's like, you don't forget that so quickly. Same thing with, um, you know, we see it a lot in these few year um, conversions. When, you know, one of the big thing that's not talked about a lot is, you know, conventional farming, everyone talks about Roundup, but mm-hmm. not as Roundup, there's the fungicides, but also the fertilizer is like mm-hmm. a huge problem. And so here it's like the vines, it's almost like a kid like eating sugar, you know, candy. It's like there's calories, but they're empty. Yeah. Yeah. And, the vine, and then if you if you give the vine real food, like if you know, you give the person or the kid or whatever, like, you know, whole grain bread or real vegetables, it's like their stomach, they can't digest it. Yeah, right. And so you see a big drop off in the first the first year in yield because the vine, if we put compost and we cover crop, like you know, there's nutrients available for the vine, but it doesn't know how to use it. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of times, you know, conventional farmers or, you know, vineyard managers, they're like, well, I'll try this organic stuff. And there's a drop off. And then, yeah, right. Sure. Like, oh, no, yeah. No, I can't do it. But then the next year, you know, we've seen it where then the, the shoots 
grow back to normal length, but they're still not the fruit. And then starting in the third and fourth year, you really get to a much like healthier and stable system. And I mean, honestly, you know, we've gotten better yields than even previously in conventional systems. Mm, the vines mm. are they're more robust, resilient to disease. They're 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 the soil is able to hold more water. Um, mm-hmm. And there, it's just you know a much healthier system, but yeah. it takes that investment and that time for the vine to forget the the injustices it got in the past. <laughs> yeah. You know, sure, and learn like almost learn to trust you or something. You know, yeah, yeah, sure. We've got a, a few moments left, and I was just uh, one one of my sort of favorite questions is just like, what are you stoked on? What are you curious about? What's What's sort of grinding in the background? Where's Where's Sean's brain at right now? That's a great question. Um, I think you know we're excited, kind of like what's the next step in our mm-hmm. evolution, you know? And I think we've done really good of taking some of these old vineyards that were low yielding, getting them back into shape. Um, you know, we cover crop a lot and do you know just compost and things. But it's like, okay, how do we take that one further step, you know, and become and even more into this idea of regenerative farming and, and low input. Up to now, we've been planting a lot of um, you know, fava beans, winter peas, uh, barley, oats, you know, kale, daikon, you know, this kind of stuff. But these are all, you know, non-native annual mm-hmm. plants. And so it's like, okay, how do we start building a system where there's, you know, perennial crops, uh, more native stuff, yeah. and then, you know, if design, you know, if we can implement it correctly, then we can maybe do less mowing, there's less competition. And so really kind of coming in and focusing on specific things like that. So I have a friend, um, he's uh, like one of the chair people of, there's a native, the California Native Grassland Society. Mm-hmm. And so I've been talking with him about how to implement um, collecting seeds from, you know, the national forest and other things like mm-hmm. that to to plant stuff so native, you know, predatory insects can come, you know, kind of create different biodiversity. Mm. Um, but then also these perennial crops that, you know, they have much more complex root systems that really help to increase the soil water holding capacity and the organic material and the, the microbial life down in the soil. And so those are the things that we're hoping to start implementing uh, this year, where now we feel like some of these vineyards, we've got them up to a place where they're healthy enough and productive enough that they can, you know, withstand like oh, a more robust or permanent cover crop situation where it's not where, because I think that's something we've learned too, is that again, some of these vineyards were neglected or had problems. It's like, sometimes you do need to come in and you need to cultivate or you need to do like a, a, a ripping pass or something to break mm-hmm. up compaction and get it back. And, I mean, I want to be always, you know, I'd love it if all my vineyards were in a, you know, no till, no cultivating. Sure. But there's almost like this activation energy you need to get over a hump in order for the vines to be healthy enough that that system can benefit them. You know, it's like if you're like exercising is good, but if you have a cold, like going to run Mm -hmm. a mile, you know, 5K or train for that, like that's not going to be beneficial. Like you need to get over your illness. Uh, before you can start trying to really focus and build yourself. And so we've reached that point of some of these vineyards are kind of healthy, you know, they're not sick anymore. Mm-hmm. And now we can begin experimenting and really pushing them in a more 
um, like deeper and exploratory way that can hopefully make them even better than than they are now. And they're even great. Like I mean, I can't. Yeah, yeah. And so those are the things we want to push forward and try and try and do really do better there. A way to look at it is like, you know, we're farming like soil microbes. You know, sure, right. Like the the grapes are that's a that's a a nice side benefit. <laughs> but then one other thing, and this is like much further down the road, but um, you know, planting either hybrids or mm-hmm. native, uh, American vinifera yeah. that is it is disease resistant. And I think that through the great work of um, you know Krista and Deirdre and other people mm-hmm. out like in Vermont working with hybrids, mm-hmm. and um, it's like people are more open to non-vinifera varieties and flavors and types of things and so with that you could you know eliminate spraying you could eliminate all sorts of stuff that we rely on because of this strong desire to make always these european grape varieties which again you know i love these grapes and i and i like working with them but i think it'd be interesting to experiment and see what see what could happen in a more kind of natural wine um context as opposed to trying to make a Napa or a, a Burgundy from mm-hmm. these hybrid grapes. Yeah, right. Really, this has been awesome. Appreciate your time as always and cool. uh, be well, dude. Yeah, thank you. You too. Hey, thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks to Shant for sharing. You can follow us on Instagram at Olmsted Wine and sign up for a monthly newsletter at olmstedwine.com. Till next time.